Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. We're still taking calls for our coronavirus hotline, and we've been hearing from inmates all across the country. We'll have more of the calls on our website and on next week's show, but we encourage you to get the word out to those you know on the inside so they can record a message about the impact of COVID-19 on the facilities they're in. That number is 765-343-6236. We reported last week that the Illinois Department of Corrections has failed to protect prisoners in many of its facilities, leading to a string of COVID-19 deaths, especially at Stateville. Unfortunately, another man imprisoned at Stateville died this week. Despite these desperate conditions, administrators at the facility have prevented many prisoners from making calls to their lawyers and guards have stepped up harassing measures, including shakedowns of cells. Authorities at the Fox Valley Work Release Facility transferred women with long-term health problems to sleep in the visitation room and moved 30 coronavirus-positive patients into the normal dormitories. Prisoners report that at least one woman turned blue while working in the kitchen and was taken away to a hospital and has not returned. The family member of a prisoner in another Illinois facility reported terrifying conditions. She writes, My fiancé is currently in Robinson Correctional Facility and the water there has been brown for a week now. They are telling inmates it is safe to drink when it's not. The inmates are complaining of stomach aches, vomiting, diarrhea, and headache. They also have limited their commissary. They can only get certain items and a small amount. They only get to shop once a month, which won't last two weeks. The cleaning supplies are watered down. They aren't taking temperatures like they are saying. They aren't providing masks either. Please help these guys. This is not right. A group of abolitionists in Joliet, Illinois, delivered life-size replicas of body bags to the driveway of Stateville Warden David Gomez. Here's an audio recording of the demands they read aloud during the action. The conditions at Stateville have always been horrific, ripe with medical neglect and fascist abuse of power, but now they are truly un undeniable death camps while COVID-19 carves up our friends and family held at Stateville. You are the warden there, David Gomez, and blood is on your hands. The deaths of our seven friends and family are on your shoulders. In the names of those fallen and those struggling still to live, we uplift the following demands. One, test everyone for COVID-19 now. How can, we, how can we contain it if there's no knowledge of who has it? We know it can be spread even if, even if a person is asymptomatic. Number two, increase medical staff and supply. Without critical care, more people will die and more blood will be on your hands, David. Stateville is already known for its rampant medical negligence. We need medical professionals and medical equipment now. We need to send those suffering with COVID-19 outside of Joliet where hospital beds and ventilators are already scarce. Number three, end the lockdown. Allow, allow yard access. If folks outside can social distance in a yard, so can we. It's not healthy to be locked up in a small cell in solitary 24-7, and social distancing is impossible in such small, confined spaces. Number four, what are you doing here? keep facilities sanitized. 
Stop intentional reuse of unsanitized cups and cells. Stop the horrific and violent spread of virus. What the hell is this about? must be cleaned. Vulnerable people must be released. Free unlimited phone and video calls as in-person visitation is indefinitely suspended. Oh it increases isolation and vulnerability of folks inside. We need a way to communicate with loved ones through this in order to survive. Programming has also been cut off and folks need support. And now we have an update from Rikers Island. My name's David Campbell. I'm serving a sentence on Rikers Island. About a month ago, on the 26th of March, um, three quarters of the sentenced inmates in the dorms in this building, the building that I'm in, uh, were sent home. Um, I think that's about the same proportion of sentenced inmates that have been sent home overall. Um, there were 550, I think, sentenced inmates, people serving city time. Um, you know, so not people who were detained um, pending, uh, you know, trial or, or a plea deal or whatever. But for most of the people on Rikers, I think 4,000 had changed people still on Rikers. Most of us are detainees. There were 550 sentenced inmates, and I think there are only 150 left, right? So the, the three dorms of sentenced inmates in this building um, are pretty empty. I mean, uh, my dorm has had between 10 and 12 people for the past month. Um, the other two dorms are about the same. Um, although today they moved um, eight people into the dorm across the hall, which brings them up towards 20. And they have mattresses and stuff set out on all the beds in the dorm that they vacated, which you know looks like they're going to move 48 people in, um, probably from another building. Um, you know, possibly from another borough, which just doesn't make any sense for a lot of reasons, you know, from a disease transmission perspective. Um, but, you know, that's what they're doing. Um, we spent uh, a little over two weeks on quarantine. They put us on quarantine for two weeks without telling us. It just kind of turned out that we weren't allowed to leave the dorm for work or for meals. Um, we had done a strike on the 22nd, refusing to leave the dorm for work or meals. And um, so that kind of hindered our ability to continue that, something that we discussed, but it didn't actually happen. It just lasted the one day. Um, but yeah, so then we just kind of were on lockdown 24 hours a day in the dorm for two weeks. It doesn't make a lot of sense from like a public health perspective, if you think about it, because they were saying we were on quarantine because we were exposed. It's like the same way that if you think you're exposed out in the workplace, you go home, right, and you self-quarantine. But you know, if you go home and self-quarantine, you close your bedroom door or like, you know, live in your, you know, finished basement or whatever and don't interact with your family. I mean, here, there are 12 of us in one room and like we can't shut the door or else anyone sink, you know, like, um, all breathing the same air, no ventilation. So like, it doesn't make much sense. And the, the quarantine was, you know, supposedly just because we may have been exposed when they brought in people um, that had been tested before they got their test results, who then turned out to be positive for coronavirus. Um, so the DOC, you know, brought those people into the dorm, then got the test results back, and then moved them out, and then just put us on lockdown for two weeks and change because they had exposed us to coronavirus. So it's like, you know, it's kind of infuriating because it was just based on incompetence on their part. It, it did get a little easier to keep distance, you know, after uh, most people went home on the 26th. Um, you know, we don't have to sleep two and a half feet away from each other anymore. But it's still, for a lot of reasons, prime conditions for an infection uh, to spread. You know, it's like, like I mentioned earlier, we're all kind of living in, in one big room, smaller than like a basketball court. So, 
We got cut off multiple times, but he called back to say that the reports of Rikers sanitizing and cleaning that have been on the news are incorrect. The facility has not been thoroughly cleaned, and it looks like they plan on moving more people into the dorm soon. Up next, we hear from an organizer in Florida who gives us an update on the coronavirus situation in prisons there. So the only actual numbers that we have to go by are, you know, largely irrelevant because they're coming from the state. And as we know, the state is not testing incarcerated people um, as they should be. And we have only seen positive cases documented coming out of um, a private facility. Florida has 145 places of um, confinement in the state prison system. 50 of those are major institutions. Seven of those are privately run. So a couple of the private prisons seemingly have been administering actual tests, and within one of those facilities is where we first started seeing numbers. Um, started at uh, five, seven people, then it popped up to, I believe, about 43 now. Um, according to the state, there are 136 confirmed cases amongst prisoners, um, another 102 amongst staff. Um, as far as we know, in our communication with our comrades inside and friends and family of incarcerated people, um, no measures have been taken to ensure the safety of incarcerated people or mitigate the effects of it inside in Florida. They have began um, quarantining people. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like. Um, from reports that I'm hearing from friends inside, um, the quarantine measures are illogical and unreasonable, even um, you know, the measures that are being taken, which largely amount to um, lockdowns. However, people are still brought together in close quarters for meals. Um, people are being transferred around the state still, even though no tests are being administered at large to the prisoner population. Transfers have been going on for a couple weeks now, and more recently, um, really high numbers of people are being transported around. We're hearing of a lot of people being moved all around the state. Um, up until just a few days ago, prisoners were, did not have, nor were they allowed to wear masks. Um, last week, the Department of Corrections Secretary Mark Inch gave the go-ahead for um, a few of the camps, a few of the prisons in Florida to start making masks out of um, the same materials that they're uniforms are made from that prisoners are forced to wear. Those masks were first distributed to security guards, correctional officers, and staff. And in the last, just the last couple days, um, we started to hear of them being distributed to prisoners. As of yesterday, there were still some camps where they haven't seen them yet, but they've been told that they will be getting them. Um, so up until just, up until that point, it was um, illegal for prisoners to protect themselves in any way, we have heard from several prisons, um, people trying to take, um, you know, self-defense measures by either um, self-quarantining within their dorms or cells, um, trying to establish safe areas and have those conversations with staff like, hey, only one of you can come in, you've got to be wearing a mask, and it has to be for, um, you know, an actual purpose. 
Um, and the other way people have been trying to protect themselves is by making their own masks. Both of those um, attempts, we've heard multiple reports of people being punished, being taken to confinement, being gassed, or are wearing a mask and not wanting to take it off. So um, basically the Department of Corrections response up until a couple days ago has been, um, you know, it's been violent, it's been irresponsible, and seemingly in- intentionally um, harmful. So <clears throat> as far as what the numbers are really gonna look like inside for um, positive cases or we know that they've um, they've told the public that four people have died so far. They did sit on that information for weeks before they let it out. So um, all of the people surrounding those infected cases were not given any, were not made aware that they had been, you know, potentially um, infected or that, you know, the area had been contaminated. So we are, um, for instance, just a couple days ago, the numbers at, Tomoka Correctional went from, um, you know, zero up to 40 something, um, in one day because, you know, they realized people are sick and they administered tests, uh, tests after, you know, largely ignoring it for, uh, months now. So we're going to start seeing, and we are seeing, um, even the numbers that the state is, is being open about, which is, you know, not much. Um, we're even seeing those jumping up at a, at a really fast rate now uh, these last couple days. As far as outside goes, um, people have been organizing uh, all kinds of protests up and down the state. We're seeing car demonstrations um, pushing for not only protective gear for everybody and, you know, stop to um, transfers and it, that proper uh, medical attention um, be provided, which is something you know that Florida, the state of Florida, is actually not capable of providing to incarcerated people. So to think of them being effective amidst the pandemic is, you know, it's unrealistic. And they know this. Um, so amongst the demands, in addition to you know proper safety practices, we been pushing to have people released from mostly that push has been around county jails um, just because there's it's an easier um, it's an easier avenue it's an easier argument to um, have short timers or pre-sentencing um, candidates you know released versus people who've already been sentenced to state uh, into the state system so a lot of pressure although has been focused on the Secretary of the Department of Corrections, Mark Inge, and the Governor, as those two are the people who have, you know, the power to make that call. And the Governor has openly said that they will not release people from the state system unless the Secretary deems it necessary. So um, there has been phone zaps and drive-by car protests up in Tallahassee targeting um, the Capitol, and also a uh, protest at the governor's house last week where somebody um, cemented themselves into barrels demanding that, you know, they take action uh, before it's too late. 
Finally, we hear more from Ty Renfro and Ben Turk, organizers in Wisconsin who tell us about the situation there and how the baseline medical neglect and racism in the Wisconsin Department of Corrections is being exacerbated by the presence of COVID-19 in the prisons there. My name is Ben Turk and I volunteer with Forum for Understanding Prisons. I've been uh, an active abolitionist and prisoner supporter for going on like 10 years or so. My name is Ty Renfro. I volunteer with a number of prison abolition groups here in Milwaukee, uh, but I am for first and foremost an antagonizer. It is impossible to quarantine persons within each facility when our entire system is working at a what, average of about 140% capacity. We've maxed, maxed out every single contracted bed we can uh, we, we can use in county facilities and jails. We don't have or allow private institutions in Wisconsin. So that is like the only avenue that the DOC is able to able to use to kind of pull people out of their own their own overcrowded facilities. But what we see in most of these jails is people who are were up double bunked in cells and sometimes even triple triple bunked in cells that were originally built to house single individuals. So yeah, for if people like some of our contacts in Columbia Correctional Institution, especially people who have heart conditions, diabetes, elderly or otherwise high risk persons for to be susceptible of those persons, you know, being house even just a cell over from someone who is sick are at huge risk and and they're qu quite vulnerable and guards don't are not protecting people the trays and food are being handed out uh, without putting covers on them so and and the guards aren't wearing masks they're coughing into their hands uh, we're hearing all these kinds of stories also guards have like the internal culture in the DOC is deeply racist and Islamophobic, but also people are just accustomed to making life hard for incarcerated people here. Like they go out of their way to really torment in, in even the smallest petty ways. Like uh, Elijah called from Wapana was talking about how they were watching, watching a movie. And so there was a movie on that people could actually escape into watching this movie, but the guard kept restarting it. So 90 minutes in the movie, he'd start it back over at the beginning and just to mess with people and, you know, kind of drive them uh, up the wall. And this is how the DOC has always operated. There were there was a long lockdown at Columbia Correctional from November to January that we've been doing a lot of advocacy around uh, because it was really terrible conditions during the lockdown. But it started with guards targeting and harassing certain people you know, calling them racist names and, and uh, neglecting, you know, any requests they had for, for mental health care or anything like that. Um, and eventually people snapped out and defended themselves and attacked a guard. There were three guards who were assaulted in two weeks time. And then the warden just put the facility on lockdown for, for two months um, and really, really severely restricted lockdown, no hot food, no showers. And like people who'd done decades in the system said it was the worst lockdown they'd ever been through. Four people died. Uh, three of them were part of the Muslim community, either during the lockdown or shortly thereafter. Uh, and so that's just how things operate here in Wisconsin. And we're trying, we've been trying to expose that, um, demanding 
saying that that warden, uh, Susan Novak, be fired since January. And now this, uh, you know, Columbia is one of the places that has had an exposure and it's on lockdown again now. And we're expecting this lockdown to last for a long time. And Susan War- Novak is uh, still still in charge there. I do want to go back to the abuse and racism question that you had in and provide a little context for one of our speakers that, that people were able to listen to, Elijah. Ben mentioned him. Elijah is a friend of mine. He's considered, I consider him my brother. And what I'm about to, to speak about is he, I've been given permission to to share with you. So Elijah went, was was revoked and went back into the prison system to Wapan Correctional Institution. Elijah suffers from um, several mental illnesses and has always, you know, been careful and aware of what that means to his life. So going back to to prison was itself a struggle for Elijah, but additionally the guards and the people within Wapong Correctional Institution make that you know, burden even further unbearable. So Elijah wrote to me and told me that he had been having suicidal thoughts, was feeling very depressed, and had written and attempted to speak to PSU. PSU you know, was very flippant with Elijah. Elijah is a, a Muslim himself, and um, and practices and feels very strongly about his, his own personal, you know, self in, self interest and self confidence and things like like that. So yeah, attempted suicide and was taken to segregation and observation. All of his things removed. These are standard procedures, but you know the lack of actual care and humanity in PSU staff and the guards during that process kind of hardened him to the understanding that that system and those people, the, the people within that that institution, were not going to be there to help if there were a problem. So, you know, in terms of when someone is is crying out for help, we, they, we hope that that person is able to, that someone else is able to intervene. Elijah understands that there is no one there for him. So he he had to he has to he has to you know push all of those feelings of of his own mental burdens down in order to just survive and and get out into into the general population. When coronavirus struck, that further cemented you know those feelings of need for isolation and other things, but that the safety in the institution wasn't there and isn't there. So beyond just Elijah and and his personal story of, of mental illness and struggle, this feeling of the of the system not being there to protect or help you has spread out into to the general population. So now we see, at, at, as particularly at the higher level institutions like Wapan Correctional and Columbia Correctional, we're hearing that if people speak out or if they request uh, disinfectant sprays or complain that masks and gloves aren't being used to pass out medication and trays, they are being ticketed and sent to the hole. If they ask, if prisoners ask for HSU or, or are having symptoms of, you know, that they think may be um, indicative of coronavirus, they are 
sent to segregation, the only place that has empty rooms available. And the fear of being isolated with that, you know, already stressful feeling of I could be sick with with an illness that may kill me uh, makes the, you know, causes even further stress on, on these prisoners. And there's already, there's been an expanding trend in some of these high level in Colombia and uh, Wapan of guards stealing or destroying property uh, whenever somebody's moved to segregation. And the complaints that get filed about it just get thrown away. And that's been happening more and more often. So people don't want to go to segregation. But then if you don't uh, quarantine when they tell you to, then the guards will threaten you and uh, drag you to the hole and put you and give you a conduct report. And so by threaten, we the the guards you go beyond normal or standard you know procedures or behaviors and do things like hold tasers directly up at prisoners' heads. Use like unnecessary force. We've heard people who like request psychological help get put on the suicide watch. Um, but on their way to suicide watch, they are also body cavity searched. So basically, if you're feeling suicidal, then the guards will sexually assault you. That's been happening increasingly often. And that was before COVID-19. That was before this crisis. We're worried that the guards are going to start quitting once COVID-19 becomes more widespread in their communities up north. Um, and then we don't know what's going to happen uh, inside the prisons. There's a lack, there's a huge lack of medical staff, and the DOC says they have a shortage of guards, but their fully stocked guard arsenal is probably disproportionately and unnecessarily high, especially on a lockdown. During a lockdown, guards don't do anything because uh, there's nothing they have to do. They just sit around. But the guards, I mean, stress levels are high on both sides, which creates further conflict and the issues the, the the guards themselves have to move in and out of the facility and and now are having to do more work tier workers and and things like that have to pass trays out to each cell directly there's no movement within the facilities to public or general areas so everything has to happen by locking and unlocking the doors getting up and passing around a phone and that's all has to be done by the guards on duty the fact that the the guards have to do these things at a more increased pace or rate throughout the day just creates further i don't know retribution for for the prisoners inside each facility the first person that that we learned had contracted coronavirus was um a doctor at wapun correctional institution his name is jeffrey c manlove and this this particular doctor has a history of being medically abusive, neglectful, forcing, force feeding. Mm-hmm. Be, uh, he, he is the primary doctor who signs off for or approves the use of force feeding in the state. And it just goes to show that that he just chose to endanger the lives of the prisoners at Wapung Correctional Institution by coming into work after having taken a visit to Italy just a few short weeks prior and as a result, test, you know, testing positive for COVID-19. Um, so, you know, the, the abuse and neglect goes, you know, down to every, every level and every bit of, of work 
and effort that these that some staff members uh, bring into the job. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kiteLineRadio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at KiteLine at WFHB.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.